0: Hello, and welcome to Church for the Cities podcast in Yuma, Arizona with lead pastor Tyrone P. Jones. Our mission is for people to encounter the reality and presence of God. For sermon videos and next steps, visit us at ctcfamily.com. Now join us for the message. Amen, amen. All right, can you take out your Bibles and stand with me? We're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, from verses 19 through 30 there. And... Also, we're gonna flip <clears throat> to verses, chapter four, verses two and three. Uh, it's kind of an odd setting, placement of these passages of Paul, but they have so much meaning, I think, to us as a church, so let's see what we can get out of it. Philippians 2, 19 through 30, if you have it, say amen. amen. It says here, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, may, so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Just to give you a little background, Paul, the apostle, is writing to the church in Philippi. He is in Rome. still. Believe, we believe he's still under house arrest, but he's concerned about the church that they started there in Philippi. So he's saying, I'm hoping to send Timothy there to check on you. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it would go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Apaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. So this fellow is there with Paul in this house arrest. Not that he's under arrest, but they're helping. Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's the end of chapter 2. Now turn, if you would, to chapter 4. Two verses there, verses 2 and verses 3, and this is where the title of the message will come from. Verse 2, chapter 4, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, and here's the key, whose names are in the book of life. Can you say amen? You may be seated. Thank you. Now, uh, through... Throughout the month of June and into July, we've done, uh, the series has been over, overall has been called Let's Talk. And uh, the idea was to talk through a couple of things that are, uh, one was very relevant, obviously, to the culture and to the church and to the word and the other uh, being about the church. So in June, we done Let's Talk Sex. Uh, those messages are available. You can go to the podcast. If you need print cop- printed copies, you can just shoot an email, we'll send, send those to you. Very deep, very informed, three messages from the pulpit, five in a setting like this for uh, uh, lessons. So that was in June. Then June, July is our church anniversary. Uh, and we usually go into, in the month of July, we usually deal with church issues, whether it be our values, whether it be our vision, uh, who we are, what we're doing, what's, what's happening, the, the ministry of the church not just local, but what the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. It just seems appropriate to do it at that time. So we had a guest, uh, and then uh, Ranel shared a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, we had uh, our friends from Central Asia. And this week, I was intending to go into more of church leadership and how that looks, and I was using these passages to address that. But the more I prepared and studied, the more I just saw the value of talking about the church as a whole. Again, not just the local church, but us as a people of God and, and what it means for us to be a part of a church and what the end outcome of that is. And you know, nowadays, there is just so many statements that are Negative about church, the church. A um, lot of it comes from the media. A lot of it comes from culture. If you listen to people long enough, they'll they'll try to make you think the church is irrelevant. Church is archaic. Christians aren't having any impact in the country or in the world, or shouldn't. Maybe the idea of shutting shutting our voices down. Church is out of touch. We haven't progressed with the culture or with contemporary society and. And we can go on and on and on. Even those that are professing Christians sometimes even goes sideways. I think when they talk about the church and, and, and biblical truth, it's, it's almost, you can hear people more siding with a political party than the word of God, or siding more with sentiment about issues and people instead of what the scriptures actually say or trying to keep up with what's popular or to be popular instead of taking a stand on what we know is right based on what God has to say or what the word of God has to say. Am I talking to the right church? And so what what, what I decided to do was to just kind of remind you of who we are. What is, uh, what is the nature of the church? Who, who is the church? What, what, how are we to see ourselves as God has? And throughout the Bible, there's so many uh, statements about the church that defines or reflects our nature. So, for example, in Ephesians 1, 20 and 23, we, talking about the church, is called the body of Christ. And what that expresses to us and means to us and says to us that we individual people are part of Christ's body. As a whole, we make up Christ's body here on earth. We're all individuals, but we have been brought together and unified as one body. So even though people don't see Jesus on earth as they did In uh, A.D. 30-33 or A.D. through A.D. 33, the body of Jesus is still here in the form of the body of Christ. Are y'all with me? So we all reflect and make up who Jesus is here on earth in the sense of expressing the elements of the Lord. We're brought together as as one. Another reflection is in Ephesians chapter 2, the temple of God. Among us is where God dwells. The spirit of the Lord lives in every one of us who are born again believers. We have the spirit of God living in us. And cumulatively as a whole, we make up the temple of God of where God dwells. So on the one hand, yes, God is a spirit and is everywhere. But God is active, serving, uh, working, and we worship together as the temple of God. The place where God dwells, where holiness is seen, is in the temple of God who are his people. Then there's the definition of the family of God. That all of us are connected together. We all have become one. We have one Lord. We have one faith We have one baptism. We're of the same DNA. We're all united. It's this very definition of the family of God that really cuts across a whole lot of cultural stuff that we're dealing with now. Because we're a family that's made up of various people groups and various skin colors, various backgrounds, social backgrounds, financial backgrounds. But we're not judged and looked upon based upon that because we've been made one family We've been brought together by the Spirit of the Most High God. And sitting around you is people who don't all look like you. And thank God that they don't. Not that you don't look good. You look wonderful. But, but we don't all look alike. We don't all drive the same kind of cars. We don't come from the same schools, the same backgrounds. Don't have the same thoughts about, about things. Don't come from the same social group and financial status. But yet we're all one in Christ. Jesus. We make up a family, and that family is the family of God. Can you say amen? And Galatians chapter 6, it calls us the household of faith, that the people of God, we're, we're believers who have faith. We are the household of faith. We're built on faith. Faith is our foundation, Faith is what we stand on. We we epitomize faith. We are the household of faith. We have a faith, stand on the faith, believe in the faith, project the faith because we're the household of faith. The pillar of truth, we see that in 1 Timothy 3.15, another name given to the church, that we are the church. The house of the Lord is where the message of life comes from where the message of salvation comes from. This is one of the things, again, if you listen to enough media, they'll, they'll say the church doesn't have a say in this, or uh, Christians shouldn't speak into this, or Christians got this wrong, as if we don't have anything to say. But we are the voice to the world. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ should never think that we're second rate to the world. We are are the pillar of truth. If there's any place that truth should be able to be heard, it's among the house of God and among the people of God. We are the pillar of truth. We have the message because it's based on the word of God. We don't base it upon our opinions. We don't base it upon just our experiences. We base it on the word of God. So we are the pillar of truth. We're the bride of Christ. People that are, that are preparing themselves or being prepared to be eternally joined with the Lord who is our husbandman. We're looked upon. The bride of Christ is just an expression of us being a people prepared to be eternally married with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's sanctifying us. He's preparing us. He's setting us apart. There's language on the, on the bride of Christ very much comes out of the, out of the uh, Hebrew custom of, of marriage. When a man was proposing to a woman, there was a period of time set apart where she prepared for that marriage, her and that family prepared, and at any given time, that man can return and be ready for the wedding to begin. We are being prepared as the bride of Christ. We're looking forward to the return of the Lord. And we don't know necessarily when the Lord is going to be returning, but we're preparing for him to return. It's an ongoing process of our life. And thank God it is. The moment we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become people that are conditionally sanctified. That means we've been set apart by the Lord as people that he's working in our lives to become more and more like him. Sorry, positionally, sanctification. Set apart to become people that's more and more like him. He's working in us. He's building us up. He's preparing that one of these days he's going to present us faultless. We don't know when the Lord is going to return, but he's preparing us For that return. And thank God we got time for us to work through and work out what God is working in our life. And then there's the other metaphor of the army of God. And here we see it most primarily in the Old Testament. There's some imagery uh, in the New Testament, but primarily in the Old Testament. It's a name to express the nature of us, that we are people that's been brought together as warriors, warriors for the Lord, that we operate on the strength of God to fight against sin and to fight against Satan and to fight against the flesh, to fight against the world. We fight against the enemies of God. Those are just some of the, some of the metaphors of how the church is defined uh, in the Bible. And, and it's, it's worth noting that, that the, the people of God, the army of God, has a real worthy cause. What God has called us to do as a people, the reason we have been set apart, it's a worthy venture. I, I've referred to this before, I believe, in a sermon illustration, but it comes out of the, the movie Gettysburg. And it's a scene in there where uh, Colonel Chamberlain is leading the 20th Mass Regiment, 20th Massachusetts Regiment. They're now in Gettysburg, so it's been almost three years of fighting. And there was a group that was also from Massachusetts that pretty much had got disbanded. A lot of them had gotten killed, and there was only a few of them left. So they had that regiment join with the 20th Massachusetts that was led by Chamberlain. And so here they are in Gettysburg, and here comes these, this this bunch that's kind of left from one of the one of the companies. And they had made a declaration that they were, they were going to be mutineers. They were not going to fight anymore. And so Chamberlain goes to meet with them. And he says a few sentimental things, understanding their plight. But he, but he played on the thought that they said that, listen, we signed up to be part of this northern army for the Civil War for one year. We left our families, left our farms, left our houses, left our life to join this thinking it was gonna be a one-year deal. We're three years into this. People's lives have been lost. We don't see no end to this battle in sight. And we've just decided that we don't wanna fight anymore. Chamberlain done a masterful job of talking to him about that. But then he talked about the purpose and even though he was talking about the civil war which it was right what he was saying it very much applies to me to the work of the church he says people fight for many things things that can benefit them but this war is for a different reason we're fighting to set men free of course he was referring to slavery but it's the same for us as a church we're fighting for people to be set free people that are enslaved in sin and enslaved in bondage, knowing that people have value, that, that, that people need to be free and people want to be free. And, and indeed, we all can make a determination that we're not going to continue to do what God has gifted us and called us to do, but we're leaving people in lurches and in situations that they can't get out of, on their own. Think about it. Every one of us needed someone in our life that would help us to get from this place to that place. People who loved us enough, who cared enough, who fought for us, who prayed for us, who told us about the Lord, who helped us understand scriptures so we can break the bondages of our life, get free from that stuff, and be free people in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a cause worth fighting for. That's the nature and the purpose uh, of the church. It's a missionary task, rescuing people that are under the control of sin and Satan, helping the world know and hear the gospel, helping people in desperate sin-filled conditions come out of that situation. It's up to the church to tell people that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ, It's up to the church for us to reflect the good news and tell people about the good news. It's up to us to live attractive. We want the gospel to be attractive, to live lives where people look upon our lives and want to know what's different about you than them or that one or this one or even their very own lives. We want to live so that the gospel is attractive. We want to live so that Jesus is famous. We want to stand firm in the truth and stand convinced that the only thing that changes our life is the power of the Most High God. Y'all doing all right? So, what Paul does in this text, in the middle of all of the doctrine and all of theology that he covers in chapter one and chapter two, chapter three and chapter four, he takes a moment to recognize those who have helped him build the church in Philippi and the churches that he's carrying out. And he defines some traits this is where I was going to go, that deals with those in church leadership. But it's, it's, it's one of those things, when you look at these traits, they're, they're traits that should be part of all of our lives who are part of the church. For example, Paul talks about in verse 19 and 24, he talks about some things he wants to do. But he makes the statement saying, this is what I'm hoping to do, and I'm trusting in God. It's, it's that foundational belief that all of us have. That everything we do is depending on what the Lord is doing through us, for us, and with us. I'm just going to just tell you this. When you wake up in the morning, you may have a perfect plan for your life. But it ain't better than the plan that God has. And every day we wake up, it ought to be a morning that we start out once again saying, Lord, it's my desire to do this, my desire to do this, my desire to do this, but my trust and confidence for my day is given over to you. Am I talking to the right church? You know, I was raised, and my, my grandfather used to always teach us that whenever we say we were going to do certain things, if I, was, if I was to say, hey, Derek, I'm going to call you tomorrow, I'm going to pick you up, we're going to go to lunch, and we're going to go down and look at that new motorcycle, that I should not end a statement that way. It should be, Derek, hey, I'm going to give you a call tomorrow, I'm going to pick you up, we're going to go down and look at that motorcycle, if it's the Lord's will. Because we come to the conclusion in our life that everything that we do should not be based on what we want to do, but what the sovereign God has purposed and planned for our life. And so Paul gives this illustration that every one of us, our greatest confidence should be a trust and a hope in God, which brings us to always to a place of prayer and humility, because we recognize we cannot do anything without him. So we need him every step every decision. How many know the most worst decisions that... Let me put it this way. Some of the biggest messes you got yourself into, you got yourself into it because you didn't turn to the Lord. You didn't ask the Lord. You didn't seek the Lord. You had a bright idea with your smart, degreed self and started out there doing what you wanted to do and got in the middle of the mess and then said, oh, Lord... I need you to help me it's a whole lot better if we start out the day, oh Lord, I need you to help me. I'm, am I talking to the right folks then he then he points to Timothy and Timothy was a, again a young man that Paul had kind of fathered in the in the faith and and mentored him and trained him uh, along with his mother and and, uh, and grandmother, but he talked about some things that made Paul so effective to any church he was sent to. Timothy, for years, just rose with Paul and went to where Paul sent him to help a church But he describes why Timothy is so effective. And even though this is, again, Paul writing about Timothy, these things that he writes about Timothy should be things that all of us should desire. He says these things about Timothy. He's like-minded, meaning he understands the purpose of the church and the role of the church and has the same mind and heart as I do about the people of the church. He's a caring shepherd. He has a proven life. People can look upon him and know that he's a born again believer. He's Christ centered. Everything he does is based on the life of Christ in him, and he's gospel-centered. Gospel-centered meaning he has a heart for people to know the gospel. He lives according to the gospel. These are all good traits that every one of us should have. These are the things, actually, that we try to instill in people through our uh, leadership school and, and the interns that we, is, that we have is building up this like-mindedness, this, this heart of a shepherd, the proven life, a Christ-centered, a gospel-centered life. Some of the things I hope you're learning from your city life group leaders is these very things that helps us be better Christians and believers and help the church to do the work of the Lord. And then he talks about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was kind of a, a, a gap filler. We see him in a couple of places in, in, the, in the New Testament and he's kind of a guy that Paul puts where he needs him or has him serve him. But what I like about his statement about Epaphroditus. He says, even though he was sick almost unto death, he served the Lord and served the church even in that condition. He was so given over to the things of the house of God, so given over to the people of the church, so given over to those who was doing the work of the church that even in the face of death, He continued to do the things that was in front of him. He did say that he was healed by the mercy uh, of God, and we're grateful that he was. But then he talked about these two ladies, Euodia and uh, Sintenshi, and what he says about these ladies is that they also were very faithful servants in the church. It speaks as a whole to what we believe about the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not a male-dominated thing. The body of Christ is believers coming together, male and female, to do the work of God that he's called us to do. And he nails it on these two ladies, how they were fellow workers, and they stood side by side with him in the service of the kingdom of God. So he gives those traits, but I want to focus on three things that he said about Epaphroditus, that I want every one of us to see should be equally true of us. If you go back to Epaphroditus, he said three things about him in verse 25. He says, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker, and fellow soldier. He's my brother. One of the things that I think that we should come to know that everybody that you're sitting next to who names the name of Jesus is your brother or your sister in Christ Jesus. Even if you're married to him, you treat them as a brother and a sister in the body of Christ, which means they don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord, and the care and the treatment that we have for one another is as if we have a care and a treatment for those who are part of the body of Christ. Am I talking to the right family? We're children of God. We're not a diverse people with just brought together by a political association or cultural unity or any kind of membership. We have different experiences in life. All of us have different experiences. But we got a common interest. The common interest is the cause of Christ. The common interest is the salvation of souls. The common interest is the expansion of the kingdom of God. We want the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to fill the earth. I don't know about you, but I want more people around me who love Jesus. I want more people around me who know the Lord. I want more people around me who indeed have a moral compass. They know right from wrong. They know good from bad. They know just from injustice. They know what is right. And that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Can you say amen? Different experiences, but common interests. The great unifier is the blood of Jesus. That forgives us for all of our sins. Every one of us here that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can stand with a clear conscience because our sins have been forgiven. When Jesus died on that cross and that blood was shed, I don't care what you think about that you have done, the blood of Jesus covers it. And because the blood of Jesus has covered all of our sins, it's his blood that unifies us as one whole. Holy, sanctified, set apart people of the Most High God. It's the Holy Spirit that's adopted us into the family, so we're all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. So we're all brothers. We're also all companions in labor and fellow workers. Sure, we all have different roles. Not everybody has a role I have, or or preaches from a pulpit, or or as a worship leader, or whatever the case may be. We got different roles but we need each other. And and an idea of us as a people of God is that we are fellow workers. We're companions together, working for the same master, working for the same people, working for the same family. None of us, none of us are in this for ourselves. None of us are in it and what's in this for me? Oh, I'll be part of the church, but what's in it for me? Sure, I'll be part of the ministry, but what do I get out of it? Sure, I'll go down there and help on serve day, but what, what, what am I going to get out of it? We don't have that kind of attitude. We're fellow laborers and companions in, in the Lord. There's a scene, I uh, probably should tell you this, some of my greatest leadership tips come from the Godfather. <laughs> and there's a scene in Godfather 2, and those of you that have seen it, Um, which I just think is a masterpiece in and of itself. It's a scene with Michael Corleone, and he's with his brother Fredo. And Fredo's in a broken condition. As a matter of fact, if you know the movie, Fredo's actually sitting in a broken chair, which, which, which is an image of his life being broken at this time. Corleone, Michael has already discovered that Fredo has made a deal outside of the family and it was causing the family some problems and was sabotaging some things that they were doing. So Michael tells Fredo that he knows what he's done, takes him down to, their, to, the, to the little beach house, and he begins to ask Fredo about this decision that he's made and what he's done so he can get the full scope of how the family is affected. It, it's a masterpiece of a scene because Fredo starts to defend himself And he begins to say things like, all you guys have done, the family has done, is sent me to do this. Fredo, go do this. Fredo, go take care of this Mickey Mouse Club in Vegas. Fredo, go do this. And he appeals and says, you know, I'm not dumb. I'm smart. I can do things too. I can take care of things. And Michael says to him, Fredo, I've always taken care of you. The family has already taken care of you. He responds with, you know, you're my kid brother, Mike. You're my kid brother. So he asked him again, what is it? What made you do this? And this was his response, talking about the other family that had, was betraying him. He says, they said it was something in it for me. There was something I was gonna get on my own, Michael. There was something in it for me. Now, let me tell you something. Whenever we have that mindset as a family, That you make decisions against the family because there's something in it for you, I'm going to tell you right now, that'll bust up the Jones family. That'll bust up the Bell family. That'll bust up every family in here, and it will also bust up the family of God. We don't make decisions as a people of what's in it for me. We are all in it for the Lord Jesus Christ and his cause and his purpose, his cause And his purpose. We're fellow laborers together, not trying to find out who gets the credit, who gets what, what's in it for me. We're all serving for the same purpose, and that's helping souls get out of a bondage and a slavery and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said this term about aprophotitis, which I think applies to us, is that fellow soldiers, that we're in the army of God, the army of the living God. And together we're fighting against darkness. We're fighting against principalities. We're fighting against spiritual wickedness. And I know oftentimes we can get it confused because believe me, I can watch TV and watch the media and get so mad at that talking head that's on the TV, that personality or that person or that leader that made this decision. But we got to realize something. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against spiritual darkness. We're fighting against principalities. We're fighting against spiritual wickedness. And it's those kinds of things that we want to push back with prayer and, and fighting in the spirit and preaching the gospel. And that may mean laying down our lives. Listen to me. Listen, attorneys practice law and doctors practice medicine, but we cannot practice with souls. People's lives are on the line. People's lives are on the line. We're not practicing this same. We're trying to get them saved eternally and their lives turned around, families put back together, marriages fixed, children on the right course. We're on the track to do the things that God has called us to do, not for our own good, but for the good of everyone and for the cause of Christ. And so we have to be ready to fight. No matter the cost, we have to stand and fight for the cause. I love this. There's a scene in, uh, it's, it's Henry Shakespeare's uh, King Henry V. And I think you can just YouTube this particular scene. It's on St. Crispin's Day, it's where King Henry V gives a speech uh, on St. Crispin's Day uh, when England, 6,000 troops, was gonna go against 30,000 troops of France. They were actually in France at Angicourt when this battle was gonna take place. It was in the 1400s, late 1400s but the English army was prepared uh, to go into battle, but it was only 6,000 of them. 30,000 was from France, and they were getting ready to fight. France had already called them out. And one of the men was talking about how bad, basically, they were gonna get slaughtered. And matter of fact, the king hadn't showed up, King Henry V hadn't showed up, So you hear them saying that this is going to be so bad that not even the king is going to show up. And sure enough, he shows up and they don't see him. It's a wonderful speech. They're concerned. He overhears them talking about being outnumbered and and we need more people and this is going to go bad. And he comes in and he makes this statement. And he gives a speech and says so, so many things. But some of the words he says, he says, I, I wish it wasn't anymore. I don't wish for one more person. I'd rather that we had an army who was up for the fight. I don't want people who aren't able to stomach what we got to fight through. As a matter of fact, if you're not up for this, he said, I'll give any soldier the money uh, to go back home. We are, have to be prepared to fight to the finish, even if it means our death. He talked about the scars that they may get, but he says, there's going to be a day when you survive, you will be able to show your children these scars that you got on St. Crispin's day. But he closes that thing out by saying this, we few we happy few, we band of brothers. The man who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. That's what I think about the body of Christ. We're a band of brothers. And yes, we may have to shed some blood in the process of saving other souls, but it's a fight worth fighting. It's a life worth saving. It's a mother worth bringing out of a condition that she's in. We're a band of brothers. And people ask me oftentimes, if it's not about the reward, the, the, what you get to get on earth, then what is it about? And I tell you that line in Philippians 4.3 was the one that got me. He talked about the fellow laborers and the fellow soldiers and the things that they had to endure. But then he said, whose names are written In the book of life, I I, got to tell you something. You, You see, we are a people that's so conditioned to what awards or rewards we can get here on earth for doing good. As a matter of fact, there's a whole lot of Christians who've bailed out. I, I can't tell you the number of people that, I, that I've taught. They say, i prayed and prayed and prayed, and it didn't work out the way that I want. I'm no longer going to trust that God. I gave, I gave, and I gave, and look at the situation that I'm in. I went through premarital counseling and done all of that, and look at what my marriage has went to. As if without the, the reward here on earth, it's not worth it. As if, if we don't get something that says you're doing good. You know, I just, I, I just got a puppy. Tesla's her name. Beautiful golden doodle. I mean, she's gorgeous. So gorgeous, I can't bring myself to whoop her behind because she's so pretty. But, but let me tell you something I've learned about, about puppies, when you're training them and all of that stuff. See, I'm not the guy... I got a staff that works under me, and they'll tell you, I'll give them praises, give them kudos, some of you got caught in the act stuff, but I'm not the guy that's necessarily, when you do the job you're supposed to do, that I'm going to say, good job, Philip, you wrote another song. That's your job. When worship is over, Phillips comes off the stage, how did I do, pastor? Good job, Philip, you led worship today. That's your job. I'm not the guy necessarily that's going to give you a whole bunch of rewards and praise because you did your job but let me tell you what i found out about tesla tesla wants a reward and a treat for everything she does that she's supposed to do so she goes outside and poops and she stands and <laughs> give me my treat give me my treat that's what you're supposed to do tesla is poop outside Soon as she eats her food and and goes to her crate and gets her water and stands in her crate, (laughs) give me my reward. I ate my food and I got my water and I'm in my crate. That's what you're supposed to do. And she wants a reward. Some of us are just like Tesla. We go lay hands on somebody. Pastor, I wouldn't lay hands on somebody. (laughs) Pastor, pastor, I gave my tithe. Lord, I gave my tithe. (laughs) Waiting for our rewards. As if our rewards are here on earth. And sure, there's some rewards on earth. And thank God that he gives them to them. But the greatest reward is your name written in heaven. In the book of life. That's the greatest reward. And there are times in our Christian life, I get it, when it seems like our labor is in vain. When you do things and you don't see the result, but here. What the scripture says, First Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my, bro- my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast. I think this is on the screen. Unmovable. Always excelling in the Lord's work. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. You can't serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and it be in vain. You can't do the work of the kingdom of God and it's in vain. You can't go after souls and preach the gospel and it be in vain. Jesus taught this lesson so well with the disciples. He sent out 72. This is Luke chapter 10. And they done some they done some amazing stuff. Stuff that they had never experienced in their lifetime. Here Jesus sends them out healing and casting out demons. And listen to this. Luke 10:17 when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, "Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes. This is symbolic of spiritual forces. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. I I just thought I better say that symbolic so none of y'all don't go out there looking for no snake pits. And, and walking around at night talking about, I can step on a scorpion in Jesus' name. You're going to be calling for somebody to pray for your healing in Jesus' name. So snakes, scorpions, and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So with all the great marvelous things we get to do on earth, healing the sick, raising the dead, helping people through some difficult situations, seeing the miracles, casting out demons, he says let's not rejoice over that. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. Let us look forward to the reward in heaven. Can you say amen? We sing a great song around here. It's called My Testimony. I love the words. It says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness run for cover. But the miracle that I just can't get over, my name is registered in heaven. I believe in signs and wonders. I have resurrection power. Still the miracle that I just can't get over. My name is registered in heaven. My praise belongs to you forever. This is my testimony from death to life because grace has rewrote my story. I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm justified. This is my testimony testimony. That's our story. That's our testimony. Jesus Christ has written our names in heaven. And I'm telling you, that's what we got to focus on is our name is written there. I'm telling you, listen, you can go down to Yuma High School right now, pull up all the records you want and look for Tyrone P. Jones. You ain't going to find my name on no honor roll. Never did make honor roll. You ain't going to find my name on no honor roll. You ain't going to find my name in no hall of fame. You ain't going to find no building named after me. No great thing has been done. But I'm telling you what I rejoice over is that my name is written in heaven. That for me is the end of the story. Now here it is. And here's the big boom. Because in Revelation 2012, it clearly talks about this in the last day. And it says the Lord... He's going to stand there for judgment, and he's got the books, and he's got the book of life. And in the books are the names of every deed that everybody's done, and they will be judged. But in the book of life is the name of people who have given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And their name is written in heaven for all eternity. It's a wonderful place for your name to be written in heaven, because no book will get up there and take your name out. Can't nobody erase it. The only one who has authority over that is the one who wrote your name in it. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says this, if your name is found in the books, you will have eternal damnation. Hear this. Hear this. You want I, I, all the trophies you can gather, gather them. All the awards you can gather, gather. If they make a monument with you on it, Wonderful. But I'm telling you, when it's all said and done, there's only one place that you're really concerned about seeing your name, and that's in the book of life. That's in the book of life. And it starts with you making one right decision. Just one. Now, I I don't know, I read this, I didn't write it down, but they say we make something like 16,000 decisions a day. They may could be minor, like I'm making a decision right now on who I'm going to look at while I'm talking and who I'm going to move. You know, you can make all them decisions all through the day. Whole lot of decisions we got to make. And can you believe no matter how long you live, all those decisions can just boil down to drama if you don't make the one right one the one right one and that's trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior some of you here haven't made that decision yet some of you are watching haven't made that decision and I'm here to tell you everything you're doing in life there can be some things that man I'm telling you people celebrate put you on the news for write articles for maybe publish books after you. but if it ain't in the book it ain't gonna matter it just comes down to whether you trust The Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, can that Jesus that died on the cross for you, for us who didn't deserve it, can you trust him with your life? That Jesus that made a decision to die for us unlovable sinful people, die on the cross and raise from the dead for your salvation, can you trust him to be your Lord and Savior? It comes right down to that. The books or the book of life. Where are you going to find your name? Everybody stand if you would. Prayer team come. I'm going to close out with the prayer. We're going to go into a song here just for three minutes, so thank you for your patience. The altars are open, and we we have people come up for prayer because there may be various things that may be on your heart and your mind, maybe family issues, marital issues, maybe relationship stuff, maybe illness, sickness, things that you want someone to pray with you for. The Bible talks about when two or three gather together, sorry, when two touch and agree together, that the Lord is there in, in the midst, and Uh, he does some amazing things so we have people here available to pray for you but also these same folks are able to help you to get to that savior that lord and savior they'll pray with you and help you get to that christ who died for you some of you may have already made that commitment and haven't been baptized they'll help you get connected to the teams there's also connect tables out there but i i want to just share this with you and I'll, i'll pray i just done a funeral for uh, an elder for us, uh, Bob Wagner. He was an elder for us for many years, um, worked on staff as our administrator, was living here with his, with his daughter, son-in-law, and grandchildren. And uh, Sarah tells me her dad had just finished doing something with one of the grandkids and sat down. She heard him sneeze, and when she heard him sneeze, she knew he was in the room. That didn't have tissue, so she went to get tissue. Went back and went to the room that he was in, and he had laid laid his head over, and he had died, just like that. Let me tell you something. We we talk about not knowing when you can take your last breath. You don't know when you'll take your last sneeze. It could happen at any moment for any one of us. There's no security for any of us. Control is just an illusion. You guys realize that, right? Because you can't control anything that happens next. So why not make a decision right now while you have the ability to trust the one who will care for you now and forever? And that's trust in Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have been so good to us, so gracious to us, so much so that you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, To die for us, that we might have eternal life. Today, Lord God, I encourage those that are listening to my voice online, those that are here in the house, those that haven't made that decision, Lord God, let today be the day they make that decision. Christ indeed will be their Lord and their Savior. For those of us that know you, Lord God, let us keep looking up, looking forward, looking toward that reward that's ahead of us as we continue to do the work that you've called us to do as a family, as a body, as a church, expanding the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel, and helping more and more people come to you. In Christ's name we pray. May the people of God say amen. God bless you.